not too long ago, I got to preach, and from here to here, I made up the whole sermon. Uh, and uh, I kind of like NASCAR. People used to come to hear me preach. Like you watch NASCAR, you know there's going to be a wreck. You don't know when it's happening. You just don't want to miss it, you know, when everybody else is talking about what Ted did. Um, and I love that kind of stuff. And so if you were here, uh, I, I'm like, you know, and we get in the car and Mary's like, what in the world are you doing? Because, uh, of course, she likes more uh, calm and stable. Um, the Lord has given us a special day, and it's called the Sabbath. And everything about the Sabbath goes against the grain of our culture. Our culture has 50 words for I'm exhausted, I'm spent, I'm undone, I'm, I'm out of gas. And we have like three words for I'm at peace. And so as much as I love to be that NASCAR entertainer, what we're talking about today is really, really hard for me. And so if you'll forgive me, sorry, if you'll forgive me, I'll probably be about as boring as I can be. And maybe you'll still be awake when we get to the end of it. Um, I don't know. Uh, but this is hard for me. If you have your Bibles and you would, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 is kind of the centerpiece of the reference to the Sabbath day in the New Testament. And as you listen to it, without a pen and paper, it's going to be too complicated for you to follow. I'll tell you ahead of time that it's going to talk about the Sabbath and rest in three different ways. And just sitting there listening, you're likely to get them confused, but it's okay, we'll work it out together. Chapter 4 begins this way, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. When it says they, it's talking about the Old Testament people. So Galatians chapter 3 says that the gospel was preached beforehand in the promise of Abraham. And so this author in Hebrews says, they had the message, they had the gospel preached to them beforehand, just as we did, and yet somehow they failed to enter that rest. And so he's setting up for a proposition, will you too also fail to enter that rest? But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who have obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's from a psalm. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who have formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, and this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, David the psalmist wrote, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken later about another rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So, Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of this word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I know that's confusing. We'll walk through it shortly. This was a phenomenal book by one of our uh, pastors in Chattanooga, Robbie Holt. It's called Practicing the King's Economy. And the very best chapter is the last, and it's all about the Sabbath. And at the end of the chapter on the Sabbath, he writes this thing. First, when we refuse rest in Yahweh, we're choosing to worship something else. Figure out what that is and ask yourself which God you want to serve. In other words... When the Bible talks about Sabbath rest, and it defines what that rest looks like, if you are not experiencing Sabbath rest, then likely the reason that you're not experiencing that Sabbath rest is because you're serving some other God, little g God. You've made something else your functional God, and it is framing for you what your Sabbath experience allows. So this again is his summary at the end of his chapter. Secondly, it says, remember that Sabbath, as with all practices they were recommended, is not merely just a good action, it's transformative. In other words, the New Testament says, beholding him, we are changed. When we look at Christ, something by the work of the Holy Spirit makes us different. And God gave to us a Sabbath rest. And so when you give your heart to the Sabbath, something happens. Sabbath becomes for us not just a nice option. It's a part of the experience of transformation. So in business uh, sense, in business language, we often talk about a strategic plan. And so sometimes I've even been invited with business owners to meet with them and help their management team work on a strategic plan. The biggest failure of most of those groups is when they create a plan. Because the issue is not a plan. A plan is just like a snapshot. It's a picture, a time and a moment. And if you get together and you create a strategic plan and then you put it on the shelf and nobody pays any attention to it, it doesn't do any good. And so most of the time when we start that top process, we ask them, we're not here to create a strategic plan, we need to create a strategic planning process. A mechanism by which you set aside time to figure out where you want to go, and evaluation points when you ask yourself, are we getting there? You understand? And the idea of Sabbath is transformational because it's not a strategic plan. It's a day-by-day walking process. God invites you to come to Him one day out of seven. And He puts absolutely no expectation on what you have to produce on that day other than being with Him. 
the reason I'm trying to stay in this voice is because I'm just not very good at that. Right? I'm like a K-3 kindergartner trying to speak to graduate school people about something I don't quite possess yet. But I see it, and I want it. The third thing that Robbie says at the end of his chapter about the Sabbath is not to let yourself get uh, overrun with guilt for what you don't do, but to remember that everything in the Christian life is a function of rest in the work of Jesus fulfilled for you. So again, if we come back to Hebrews, and I don't walk you through the whole long passage, right? Just let me tell you the three parts of rest. The Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They were exhausted. They had been slaves in Egypt. Moses had led them out of Egypt. They got middle schoolers with them. And the middle schoolers are really brats. They don't like what they're doing. They're not on this desert. What the heck? I can't get my radio. My iPhone won't work. What are we doing out here in this desert? It was not fun, right? And they began to complain. And in the wilderness, Moses told them a story about creation. And in that story, God made the whole world. And the pinnacle of the story of creation was the seventh day when God blessed everything that he'd made and he rested. And so the first picture of rest and the Sabbath is the story of creation. But the second picture, what Moses tells the people wandering in the wilderness is, yeah, it's exhausting out here. And we gather together on Saturday and we do our Sabbath celebration out here in the stinking wilderness. But this will never be Sabbath rest for us because we won't get to Sabbath until we get to the promised land. The promised land is Sabbath for us. The first Sabbath was God's resting on creation. The second Sabbath that Hebrews talks about is the people wandering in the wilderness looking. We can't stop until we get home. And we will never be home here until we get to the promised land. That's why Moses tells the story. Where did the people of Israel want to go? Come on, you scholars, you know that. When they griping in the wilderness, what were they saying? Yes, let us go back to Egypt. Remember we had those leeks and onions. Leeks are horrible, right? But when you're wandering in the wilderness, you say, hey, let us go back. And Moses tells this story. He says, there's no going back for us. We don't stop till we get to the promised land. The writer of Hebrews reminds us as an example. You remember the generation who didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb and wouldn't enter the promised land for fear of the giants. What happened to them? They never entered God's rest. They wandered exhaustively out in the wilderness until that whole generation died away. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, please listen. Don't come to the edge of promise and not go in. Today, if the Lord speaks to your heart, Come into his rest. And then the writer of Hebrews says, the third Sabbath day. And yet, there still remains for us 
Sabbath on the other side. Even what we do here is just a taste of what it's going to be when we go home. I met with a group of men during the week, the start of our meeting. All we do is read the 23rd Psalm. And in the 23rd Psalm, it just jumps out at you. He leads me beside still waters. Really? This thing that we do Monday through Friday, that's like still waters for you? I got no still waters. I'm in the Okoe, and I'm going as hard as I can. Look out, there's a rock, right? But Sabbath is a peaceful river. Dear friend, the Lord invites you to rest in Jesus and come to Him. Go ahead, will you? So there are four things that we know about the goodness of work. Work is primarily one of the ways that we express dignity as God's vice regent. Keep going. Work is normal, primary way that we generate profit, right? It's, it's just what work is. Number four, work is mangled by sin and injustice. That's why work is hard, right? Because weeds grow up. But uh, the last thing is God calls his people to work and to generate work for the marginalized, right? And most particularly in our conversation about Sabbath, I'd like you to consider that in Deuteronomy 5 and in Exodus 23 and in Leviticus 23, when it talks about the different kinds of Sabbath, Right? It says that on the Lord's Day, again, I won't go there. You could go there later. We are to be at rest. And then it says us and our household and our donkeys and the sojourner who lives among us. That the practice of Sabbath rest ought for the body of Christ automatically to include the marginalized, those on the periphery. This is why we're having to do this calmly. Because I can't even begin to figure out how to care well for the marginalized. If the first part of my sermon was an introduction to the idea of Sabbath, now I'm coming home to application. Dear friend, do you comprehend that the Lord has created a day of rest that is not merely for you. Some part of your Sabbath practice of resting in Him ought to be care for the marginalized. Cade, I authorize you as a child in your family to ask your dad, Dad, how does our Sabbath practice care for the marginalized? Right? Children ought to be a part of this thing. Families ought to be regularly practicing Sabbath in such a way. You understand? A, a child who comes to Jesus Christ is a vice regent of the high king of heaven. When the Bible says children honor your parents, it speaks to children as if they are responsible. So it's perfectly in order 
for Cade, as a follower of Christ, to say to his father, Dad, I don't get it. The fat-faced preacher with only one eyebrow that goes all the way across? He said, Sabbath is for the marginalized. I'm just wondering, Dad, how does our family give itself for the marginalized in our practice of Sabbath? I love my family. I didn't do this. I love even especially the children in my household. I just got a text of my granddaughter getting a second grade Bible at church. If I'd had time, I'd have put it up there because everybody ought to see her. She's amazing, right? Am I, as a follower of Christ and a shepherd of my family, raising my children with love for the marginalized that reflects the high king of heaven? That's my question. And if we don't know how to do it, let's just say we don't know how to do it and try to do it better together. When I was pastor of a church in Ocala, I loved it. One of our ruling elders was a football coach. He was down in Wildwood that's not unlike Trenton, except it had a huge African-American population. The African-American population was divided by drugs and non-drugs. And one of the players on his team, yes, ma'am, please. Oh, that's a good question. No, 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 no. Thank you so much. Her question was, what do you mean by marginalized? And um, it's a strange and different answer. People that are without power. And the reason that I would say that is because some of us swim in white privilege, meaning because I was born into the family that I was born into, with the parents that I had and the location that I had and the education that I had, I feel like that's normal. Kind of like a fish, you know, that swims in water, and the fish doesn't ever know anything about the water because the water is all the fish has ever known. Right? So it feels normal to him. And so, um, again, it's a great question. Uh, The ruling elder in my church loved some of the players on his team who were African-American. One of them had a bad play and threw a fit. At halftime, he came walking into the locker room, he took his helmet off, and he threw it down on the ground. And our coach, who loved this kid, said to him, Son, I expect you to be more than a street end. Referring to the African-Americans that lived across the tracks. The kid knew exactly what the coach meant, and the coach loved him. It was not a relational problem between them. The grandmother who raised the kid knew that the coach treated her grandson like a son. It was not a problem for her either. But it went all the way to ESPN, Jeremy Schaff, the power of the N-word. He was fired. There was a giant gathering. 350 folks, all African-American, met the NAACP gathering to talk about what we're going to do with this problem. I'm this guy's elder, so I figure it's my job to go to this meeting. Well, it was kind of interesting when there were 50 people and when there was 100, when there were 350 people in a room about like this, all crammed in there, and there's only one white boy. And everybody's talking and getting real, real excited about how they're going to raise up and do whatever. And I finally had to raise my hand. 
right? And 350 people look at me and they're not happy. And I say, I just want to tell y'all that I'm the shepherd of a broken little sheep. And where I come from, the shepherd ought to take responsibility for the action of his sheep. And so I just want to tell y'all, I'm here tonight to say I'm sorry. Well, it was incredible. It was a great experience. I got a real African-American butt-whipping last week because I have talked my way into being in charge of a training for our whole denomination because I think our whole denomination has done this training really poorly and no one will say the emperor has no clothes and I'm that kind of guy. So I finally step up and say, not only does the emperor not have any clothes, I'll do it myself. They say, no, you're an idiot. We don't let you do that. But I wormed my way in. They couldn't stop me. And now I got it all. Right? The whole world is coming to Chattanooga January 7th and 9th just for me in the PCA. Y'all need to pray for that. I'm setting up various trainings for church planters. I've got trainings for suburban planters. I've got trainings for rural planters. I've got trainings for urban hipster planter. And I'm not doing this myself. I'm calling on my friends saying, y'all, I'm going to get killed here. Y'all got to come help me. And people are flocking to come because they all know our training's been really bad. So I think it's a good idea since I've done this and I've done this and I've done this, I'll do an African-American church planner training. I don't know why we've never had one. And so I put the same amount of no thought into prescribing what I'm doing for rural, suburban, urban hipster into African-American. Well, I light a torch and I offend all the people that are uh, involved in African-American leadership in our denomination. So we get to have this little come-to-Jesus meeting. And they say to me what most people do. Who planned this thing? Well, there's a simple question to that. I'm in charge. No one planned it. I don't do planning. I just do stuff. And, and the bulk of it works all right. Well, at least for me. And I'm all I care about. Right? And uh, they say, at the end of our conversation, this is why you'll never work with black people. Help me understand that. What, what are you trying to share with me? He said, you're going to get this done between now and January 7th. You can't even see that the reason you can do that is because you're white and you have power. And you can call all your friends and all your friends will come. You already said you're not even going to plan. Nope, I'm not going to plan a bit. Everybody's on their own. They said black people can't do that. What do you mean? We plan and we pray and we pray and we plan and we pray some more and then we go out and we get our butts whooped. And we come back and we fall on our faces. Because we don't have money. We don't have social power. They gave to me a book called White Awake. And I would love to invite you to consider it. White, W-H-I-T-E, White Awake. It's a play on words like White Awake. And all it is is a white preacher sharing what he learns as he moves into the experience of being African-American. And he starts out at the beginning by telling a story where he says to a person of a different culture, oh man, your culture is incredible. I wish I had culture like that. 
And the guy says, don't you understand? You do. But I tend to think that all of my white experience that I've grown up in is neutral and natural, and I don't recognize it as being something powerful. Is this making any sense at all? I hope I'm, I'm not, not too confusing. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's not up to me. Yes, you're right. In fact, that's... Yes, yes. Yes, let me say it to you. What she's saying is, you look like and you sound like it's you, you, you. And I'm saying to you, she is correct. I was raised to be able to do stuff on my own. In my family, we didn't say, I can't. I was always connected to enough people that if my dad gave me a job to do, I better go get that job done. And if in the course of attempting that job, I found that I couldn't do it, it was my job to go find friends who could help me. And if I needed something to get the job done, it was my job to find people who had the resources to buy the tool that I needed to get it done. She is exactly right. I'm confessing to you that I call something the Sabbath when the Lord invites me to rest, and I'm confessing that even in my Sabbath, I cling to all kinds of stuff that I don't even recognize. But the Sabbath really is an opportunity for me to come exhausted and say exactly what she said. Oh yeah, it's not about me. I rest in Jesus who did for me what I cannot do. And I'm not talking about drugs, sex, rock and roll. I'm not talking about bad, evil things. What I'm confessing to you is I carry with me cultural attachments that I don't even see. You understand? The reason that I would tell you the story of the African-American folks helping me hear what their life is like is because I didn't even notice. I saw something that needed to be done, and because of the way I was brought up, I set out to do it, and I didn't even realize all the cultural ramifications. And so in answer to your questions, people that are marginalized are those people who don't feel like there's anything they can do to get something done. What's that? Yes. Yes, yes. She's saying, oh, gosh, this is perfect. Right? No, 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 it's perfect. It's perfect. No, no, no. You're much better at this than I am. Right? Proverbs says that the wealth of the righteous is their fortified city. Proverbs says the wealth of the righteous is their fortified city. What that proverb means is people, not sorry, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. I said that wrong. The wealth of the rich is their fortified fortified city. What, What that proverb means is you don't notice it, but when you've got lots of cash in your pocket, it makes you feel like you can do anything. It makes you feel like you don't need anybody. And the wealth of the rich becomes the fortified city that protects them. Uh, Let's jump to a female example. My wife. She's not even here to defend herself. She's in the nursery. In their family, you pay your bills on time. 
If you uh, had my wife and a sharp knife and a checkbook and you said you can either not pay this bill on time or hurt yourself with this knife, she would have, you understand? In her family, you do not pay bills late. It is not allowable. And what I'm confessing to you is my wife doesn't even see that as something unnatural. It's just something true of her family. But there are lots of people who come to a place where they can't pay their bills on time. And they still get invited to rest. There's lots of jobs that I really can't do that I desperately need to turn over to Jesus. And Sabbath rest for me is a way to rest in the work of Christ. When I had a women's Bible study, they led themselves in this conversation to the place where they were saying to each other, what if we came to church on Sunday with no makeup? That's exactly what they said. Again, for you young college kids, y'all are at an age where your skin is so beautiful, you can, it, that's a natural thing for you. But for these ladies to have to show up without makeup at church, right? I'm, I, I, get, I have to work on my belt because for my wife, the location of my belt, I don't even care if I had a belt, I could be up here in shorts, right? But for her, there are certain cultural conventions that have to be right in order to rest on the Lord's day. And what I'm telling you in way too long a way I didn't even consider marginalized people on the outs a part of my Sabbath experience of rest. The Lord invites us to rest one day in seven. In the Old Testament, he invited them to plow their fields and then the seventh year to leave it fallow. That meant don't plow it, let it rest. Let the land have a Sabbath. And on that seventh year when the land was at Sabbath rest, the landowner and the slaves went together. And so you broke down the division between the marginalized and the powerful, and you worked side by side. Part of Sabbath rest is to say to people who are outside the bounds of our culture's acceptance, there's a place for you here. And this whole time is just to say, I got to work on that. I got to figure out how to be more willing to let go of those things that cause me to feel like I'm okay and I got to rest in Jesus. There's a Sabbath rest for you. Maybe you don't feel like you live up to your parents' expectations. Maybe you don't feel like, oh, sure, your parents love you. They have to love you. But do they like you? Maybe you don't feel like you've garnered their favor, even without their favor. The Lord's rest is for you. Maybe you couldn't pay your bills last month. His rest is for you. Maybe you've stepped into stuff that you can't pull off. His rest is for you. Maybe the family home that you grew up in wasn't like everybody else's white picket fence. Maybe your marriage hasn't turned out like you thought it was supposed to be. His rest is for you. The Sabbath day 
is for us to come poor in spirit with nothing and find his peace. Let's pray together. Father, I bless you for these folks who have allowed me to just walk through this conversation. I have no idea what these words might invite them into, uh, but I do believe that you, Holy Spirit, are trying to speak to me, and you're trying to give me a new and fresh experience of what it means to honor you on the Lord's day and what it means for my household. I believe that you're making me more sensitive to all the ways that I have privilege. And you're welcoming to me to consider that other people might feel outside and I can make room for them. So, Father, uh, in all these things, we pray that your Spirit would come and move in us tender. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.